We are back. We went out talking a little bit about elections, so I think I need to insert um, uh, an excerpt from an obituary here. We normally talk about people who pass or who have passed recently in segment three, but I want to mention the passing of William N. Bill Durley, as noted in the Sacramento Bee. Mr. Durley was a veteran of World War II's submarine front, an active volunteer in several local charities, and most interesting to us, a former Sacramento County clerk who developed a homemade device that removed hanging chads from voting ballots. Mr. Durley died on July 9th at age 89 of natural causes, but in the article, decades before the term hanging chad entered the country's consciousness, Mr. Durley assembled a homemade device that disposed of the pesky paper that launched a controversy in the 2000 presidential election. His device, made of a box, a razor blade, and his wife's vacuum cleaner, removed chads from ballots and ensured that Sacramento elections proceeded without Florida-like headaches. Mr. Durley's daughter, Gail Johnson of Grass Valley, told the Bee that, uh, that his device was how Sacramento kept from having voter disasters. Her father had identified this problem in the 1960s, and when it came up again, he said, well, we know how to fix that. He was a very progressive election official. Mr. Durley also played a role in researching the first voting machines used in the state and was named California Chief of Elections in 1975, a post which he held for 10 years. What is so interesting to me about this is that using a box a razor blade, and a vacuum cleaner, one could construct a, a very simple device that prevented problems with hanging chads. I voted here in Sacramento many times on the machines, which apparently were pioneered uh, through Mr. Durley and others, and there was never a problem. There wasn't a problem in Florida either, unless some people were trying to create one. Instead of developing a simple device that would take care of paper chads, instead we got HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, which uh, seems to have the goal of placing electronic voting machines in every precinct across the country. Now, as you may have noted in recent weeks, what's going on in Iraq has been pushed off of page one. We, lo- we noted last month on the program that uh, Karl Rove, uh, after dodging uh, a possible indictment in the Valerie Plame case, is back at uh, George Bush's side directing the electoral efforts for November. And, uh, of course, Rove does what Rove always does, which is take the political, the strongest political asset of the opposition, in this case the Iraq fiasco, and turn it into a liability. Karl Rove's goal has been to, uh, to turn anyone who criticizes Bush's Iraq policy into a cut-and-run Democrat. Writing in Newsweek, uh, Jonathan Alter said, You would think it'd be the GOP who was running away from the war. Instead, in gambler's parlance, Republicans doubled down on Iraq. And Alter noted that uh, it looked recently, writing, uh, writing in the July 3rd issue of Newsweek, that the Democrats were so fearful of being cast as war weenies that they would change the subject. Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid and company held a press conference on the Democratic issues for the fall, and they barely mentioned Iraq. Hillary Clinton tried to focus on a lengthy list of worthy issues that, except for the mistreatment of veterans, had little to do with the war. For the record, if, if you're keeping score, 
Things are not going well in Iraq. Two days ago, in Iraq, gunmen kidnapped 26 Iraqis in a rather brazen raid on an Iraqi-American commerce office. According to Robert Reed in the Associated Press, the shootings, kidnappings, bombings, and extortion in Iraq have prompted a public outcry about the effectiveness of Iraq's U.S.-trained security forces, whose ranks are believed infiltrated by Sunni insurgents, Shiite militias, and common criminals. We, of course, will have more to say about Iraq, but we would like to note for the record that Thomas Friedman, writing in the New York Times, said last week, I hate to admit it, but maybe the skeptics were right. The Mideast may simply not be ready for democracy. Thomas Friedman is a very sharp guy. His book, From Beirut to Jerusalem, uh, is to be recommended highly. We have been puzzled uh, in the last couple of years by his unabashed support of what is going on in Iraq, but apparently even Thomas Friedman now thinks we've made a mistake. Although more and more Americans are starting to think like Thomas Friedman, it does not appear that a consensus has yet emerged in the country, a clear consensus stating that the war has been a mistake. And as we just noted a second ago, the Republicans are planning to run on the war as a good idea this coming November. The rest of the world is looking upon us with some puzzlement. Writing in The Guardian, Timothy Garton Ash noted that America has gone war crazy. Gung-ho veterans expound on every TV channel. Patriotic titles, marked as such, are on sale in every bookshop. Cabinet officials announcing or confirming new programs routinely remind Americans that in a time of war, special security measures are necessary. Driving to the wine country last week, I did something I, I don't normally do, which was listen to the likes of Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, at least as long as I could stomach it. And I gotta say, Tom Tomorrow was right when he wrote In This Modern World, contrasting the two types of Americans. The one who reads, who we referred to as Gloomy Gus, noting that Gloomy Gus reads the news and is appalled by numerous well-substantiated reports of detainee abuse. The character looking at the syst systematic human rights violations and commenting, this is a betrayal of everything our country stands for. Contrasted with Perky Pete, listening to right-wing talk radio and believes none of it ever happened. The character saying, Rush said it was nothing more than a fraternity-style hijinks. Say, want to see my Club Gitmo t-shirt? It's very amusing. And yes, as I was listening, Rush was going on and on and on with that big, chuckling, folksy voice talking about Club Gitmo. It is all a joke to some folks, but we would like to point out, at this point, the law of unintended consequences. In the wake of uh, Israel's attacks upon Gaza, first of all, and followed quickly by the attacks on southern Lebanon, I had a rather uh, lengthy, knockdown, drag-out argument with, uh, still, a good friend of mine, and in fact, a good friend of this radio program who has contributed to it on, on many occasions over the months and years. I was distressed to be having basically the same argument with him in 2006 I was having with him in 1972. Israel's invasion of Lebanon, he thinks, is a good idea because it will bring peace to the area that much sooner by eliminating those who are determined to destabilize the area 
and attack Israel. While uh, hanging out in the Webster Emerson dorm here at UC Davis back in 1972, we had a disturbingly similar long drawn-out argument over the plans of the U.S. military to expand the aerial bombardment of Southeast Asia into Cambodia. My friend's argument was that this would bring about a quicker peace process, bring the war to a close that much sooner, and thus ultimately save a great many lives. One wag living in the dorm hearing our argument uh, volunteered the opinion that, you know, bombing for peace is like screwing for chastity. The Vietnam War, of course, had not arrived uh, in, in Cambodia until we expanded the air war, but the consequence of it was the deaths of an estimated 1.7 million Cambodians in the 1970s after the country basically was split, divided up, went crazy, and the side we supported, that of Lon Nall, was defeated by the Khmer Rouge headed by Pol Pot. During the blood-drenched 44 months that the Khmer Rouge ruled Cambodia, it killed one in every six Cambodians, including much of the middle class in the name of creating a pure agrarian society free of foreign influence. It was the kind of bloodbath they said would take place in Vietnam if we didn't fight. Well, it never took place in Vietnam, but once we expanded the Vietnam in War into Cambodia, the destabilized country did fall victim of just this kind of atrocity. I thought of this when I saw in the paper that Ta Mok, the nom de guerre of the Khmer Rouge leader who played the key role in the deaths of an estimated 1.7 million Cambodians, died in a military hospital in Phnom Penh where he was awaiting trial on genocide charges. To those who do not remember their history, as George Santayana warned us against, we would remind people that in 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon. It did so to root out the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was then operating in southern Lebanon. The consequences of this were an 18-year occupation and a virtual destruction of the infrastructure of Lebanon. A group organized to fight the Israeli occupation, a rather more hardcore group than the PLO. They were called Hezbollah. And they eventually succeeded in driving out the Israeli army. In the year 2000, Israel, with its tail tucked between its legs, withdrew. Now, we're certainly not going to defend the Hezbollah practice of firing rockets into Israel on this program. But, although Hezbollah has been portrayed in the media as a terrorist organization, it is equally uh, perhaps well described as a charitable organization. It operates uh, hospitals, it provides aid, it provides schools, it provides a lot of support for people in southern Lebanon, and also has a militant faction bent upon attacking Israel to the south. Hezbollah is an independent entity operating inside of Lebanon. The Lebanese government does not control it. Members of Hezbollah are spread throughout the southern Lebanese and perhaps throughout the entire country's population. We've been deeply disturbed on this program to note that in the wake of the attack, which has been described by some as not an eye for an eye, but more like an eye, an arm, and a leg for an eye, 
that the U.S. government did not call for a ceasefire and is still not really calling for a ceasefire in the area. A lot of other nations are, a lot of other organizations are, but apparently cooler heads are prevailing at the Department of State where Condoleezza Rice has said she's not going to call for a ceasefire unless we can get a permanent ceasefire. To us, this is kind of like having, you know, gangs in your neighborhood who are intent upon fighting one another. Uh, well, just letting them have at it uh, next time they, they are uh, having an altercation. Because, well, unless you can come in and find a permanent peace, why bother even stepping in to stop the carnage? At this point, let me quote from Paul Craig Roberts, chairman of the Institute of Political Economy and research fellow at the Independent Institute, as we mentioned earlier, former associate editor of the Wall Street Journal, former contributing editor of National Review, two very conservative publications. Quote, gentle reader, do you know that Israel is engaged in ethnic cleansing in southern Lebanon? Israel has ordered all the villagers to clear out. Israel then destroys their homes, and murders the fleeing villagers. That way, there is no one to come back and nothing to which to return, making it easier for Israel to grab the territory, just as Israel's been stealing Palestine from the Palestinians. Do you know that one-third of the Lebanese civilians murdered by Israel's attacks on civilian residential districts are children? That's in a report from Jan Igland, Emergency Relief Coordinator for the UN. He says it is impossible for help to reach the wounded and those buried in rubble because Israeli airstrikes have blown away all the bridges and roads. Reading further down, does it make you a proud American that your president gave Israel the green light to drop bombs on convoys of villagers fleeing from Israeli shelling on residential neighborhoods in the capital of Beirut and throughout Lebanon on hospitals, power plants, on food production and storage, on ports, on civilian airports, on bridges, on roads, on every piece of infrastructure on which civilized life depends. Are you a proud American? On July 20th, your House of Representatives voted 410 to 8 in favor of Israel's massive war crimes in Lebanon. Not content with making every American complicit in war crimes, your House of Representatives, according to the Associated Press, also condemns enemies of the Jewish state. Who are the enemies of the Jewish state? They're the Palestinians whose land has been stolen by the Jewish state, whose homes and olive groves have been destroyed by the Jewish state, whose children have been shot down in the streets by the Jewish state, whose women have been abused by the Jewish state. They are Palestinians who have been walled off into ghettos, who cannot reach their farmland or medical care or schools, who cannot drive on roads through Palestine that have been constructed for Israelis only. They are Palestinians whose ancient towns have been invaded by militant Zionist settlers under the protection of the Israeli army who beat and persecute the Palestinians and drive them out of their towns. They are Palestinians who cannot allow their children outside their homes because they'll be murdered by Israeli settlers. These are strong words indeed from Paul Craig Roberts. Reading further down, Despite the Israeli spin on news provided by U.S. reporting, a majority of Americans do not approve of Israeli atrocities against Lebanese civilians. Hezbollah is located in southern Lebanon. If Israel is targeting Hezbollah, why are Israeli bombs falling on northern Lebanon? Why are they falling on Beirut? 
Why are they falling on civilian airports, on schools, on hospitals? It's a powerful essay. I recommend that you pull it up on Google. Paul Craig Roberts. It's available at antiwar.com, titled The Shame of Being an American. He closes with the following. Neocon Larry Kudlow claims that Israel is doing the Lord's work by murdering Lebanese, a claim that should give pause to Israel's Christian evangelical supporters. Where does the Lord Jesus say, go forth and murder your neighbors so that you may steal their lands? The complicity of the American public in these heinous crimes will damn America for all time in history. Now that seems incredibly inflammatory to many of you out there. But let us take a moment to quote from former leaders of the state of Israel to put in perspective their viewpoint on the situation regarding the state of Israel. How can you have a Jewish state, a democracy slash Jewish state in a part of the world where you don't have a majority of the population as Jewish, which was the circumstance in 1948. Well, the population was about half, about evenly divided to my understanding, and um, the way it was done was making 700,000 Palestinians go away. It's curious to note that the current invasion in Lebanon has displaced about 700,000 Lebanese, about 200,000 of which have found their way into Syria. Let me just do a few quotes from Israeli leaders. David Ben-Gurion, the first president of Israel, wrote in 1937, we must expel Arabs and take their places. In May of 1948, speaking to the Israeli general staff, He said, we must use terror, assassination, intimidation, land confiscation, and the cutting of all social services to rid the Galilee of its Arab population. Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel from 1969 to 1974, told the Sunday Times in 1969, there's no such thing as a Palestinian people. It is not as if we came and threw them out and took their country. They didn't exist. That same year, she said, How can we return the occupied territories? There is nobody to return them to. Speaking to Le Monde in 1971, she said, This country, Israel, exists as the fulfillment of a promise made by God himself. It would be ridiculous to ask it to account for its legitimacy. Yitzhak Rabin According to leaked, censored versions of his memoirs published in the New York Times in 1979, referring back to events in 1948, said, We walked outside, Ben-Gurion accompanying us. Alan repeated his question, What is to be done with the Palestinian population? Ben-Gurion waved his hand in a gesture which said, Drive them out. Menachem Begin, in his speech to the Knesset, quoted uh, in in 1982, said, the Palestinians are beasts walking on two legs. In a speech to uh, Jewish settlers, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir said, the Palestinians would be crushed like grasshoppers, heads smashed against the boulders and walls. Ariel Sharon, then the Israeli Foreign Minister, addressed the meeting of the Somet Party in 1998 with... 
Everyone has to move, run, and grab as many Palestinian hilltops as they can to enlarge the Jewish settlements, because everything we take now will stay ours. Everything we don't grab will go to them. We'd like to refer you to some excellent coverage of what has been going on uh, in the Middle East to our local Sacramento News and Review in their news section of the last two issues. They've quoted first a local Palestinian pleading uh, for their, their homeland's safety. Article by R.V. Scheid in the July 20th issue, which focuses in on what's been going on in Gaza. Uh, followed by the July 27th uh, issue, the news section, also article by R.V. Scheid, where they spoke via email to a local Lebanese student who was reporting from the war zone. We have a lot more quotes on this topic, but let's take a short break at this juncture. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. (laughs) 